The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. I'm going to read the first five verses of 1 Peter 5, and then ask for the Lord's help as we walk through this text. This is God's Word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for, sh- not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the blessing just personally this text has been to me this week and I pray that you would guard my heart and my mouth as I speak to those that you have purchased with your blood Lord thank you for the tension that exists in your word that is a noble task to pursue the office of elder but It is also a place where stricter judgment is received. So I pray that tension would would come through. I pray that just as we sing of the glories of the cross, that the cross would be evident in the way that our elders shepherd, not as professionals, not detached from those that you've called us to love and shepherd, but among them. And Lord, give our congregation a heart filled with trust in you that would be subject to its elders. Continue, we pray, to raise up elders, raise up men who are qualified to serve you and to teach and shepherd the flock. And continue, Lord, to provide unity for us as a congregation as we seek to glorify you. But above all, Lord, we pray we'd be marked by humility because we we see, Lord, that you oppose the proud. And so we pray for your grace. We pray for humble hearts this morning as we are addressed by your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Ian Bounds said that the preacher is not a professional man. His ministry is not a profession. It is a divine institution, a divine devotion. I can remember early, earlier in my ministry reading a book called Brothers Were Not Professionals by John Piper, a book to pastors about the pastoral ministry and it being, and really kind of being shaken by it, but also really helped by it. I just want to read just a, a little section of it. Piper says this, the more professional we long to be as pastors and elders, the more spiritual death we leave in our wake. There is no professional childlikeness. 
There is no professional tenderheartedness. There is no professional panting after God. Our business is to weep over sin. Is there professional weeping? How do you carry a cross professionally? What is professional faith? How can we be drunk with Jesus professionally? We are given the wonder of the gospel to carry around in clay pots. Is there a way to be a professional clay pot? So, so brothers, uh, pastors, elders, future elders in the room, those who might be called or God might even be calling to vocational ministry, we are not professionals. This is a sermon about the role of elders. And the imagery isn't slick clothes or clever, funny sermons or social media presence, but shepherds and sheep suffering and heart-motivated eagerness to serve. The world sets an agenda for a professional man, but God sets an agenda for the shepherd, for the spiritual man. But this is not just a sermon about elders. In some ways, it's a sermon to myself, and you guys are welcome to listen in, and to the other elders, but it's also a sermon to a congregation, to God's people. Look at how Peter begins the section in chapter 5. I exhort the elders among you. The you there is you, the congregation. And so Peter wants the church to listen to the way elders are to be qualified to lead because it will be the church that elects those elders. It'll be the church that holds those elders accountable. It'll be from the church those elders are raised up. And it'll be the church that's called to submit to those elders' leadership. So no one's exempt from listening today. You can't check out today. Peter addresses elders who lead and the congregation that follows. And all this, if you remember, in the context of 1 Peter, is in the midst of suffering and difficulty and trials, which I think these things would just heighten these these relationships of, of leading and following. We left off last time with Peter's instructions not to be surprised by a fiery trial that comes to you to test you. Instead, rejoice because you get to share in Christ's sufferings. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are actually blessed. Don't be ashamed. Carry the name of Christ and Christian proudly when you suffer. And we also saw that suffering is a kind of purifying judgment that that sorts and separates God's people. It refines. It separates true believers from false ones and refines the faith of God's people. And this judgment we saw begins at the household of God. That's significant. We mentioned the Old Testament background to that in some different places, but I want to remind you of one particular place in Ezekiel chapter 9. Remember, God was sending a refiner's fire to Israel. It would start there in chapter 9, verse 6. He says, at my sanctuary, literally at my house. So it begins at the household of God. And then we read, they began with the elders who were before the house. So I actually think that's Peter's progression of thought, that, that progression in Ezekiel here in 1 Peter. He's following what Ezekiel's saying, judgment beginning at the household of God, and then it's natural for him to start to talk about elders. The elders are on the front lines and will face pressure and suffering. What should they do? How should they respond to the purifying pressures of suffering and the challenges that are associated with pastoral ministry? There's a heightened importance in Peter's tone. 
And that's what these verses address. As well as the response of the congregation to the elders' ministry. So what governs both of those relationships we see in the church. And, and, and really what governs those relationships is the main point of our, of our sermon this morning. If you're following along, there's some, some outline points there on your bulletin. You can follow along. Here's the main point of the text in the sermon. For elders who shepherd and for the congregation that follows, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. For elders that shepherd and for the congregation that follows, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. I want to point out three relationships in our passage that touch the issue of elders and the congregation in this way. So first, I want us to see how an elder speaks to other elders. So an elder to elders there in verse 1. What's that relationship look like? with Peter speaking to the elders. Number two, I want us to see how elders are called to have a relationship with the flock. So elders to the flock, verses two to four. And then finally, the relationship of the flock, the church, to the elders and to each other. The flock to the elders and the church to each other as a whole there in verse five. So if you're here this morning as an elder or a hopeful future elder, this is, your, this is our job description. And if you're here as a member of our church, this is God writing out a resume for your leaders. And all of us would need to understand that, that in the life of the church, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So first, let's look at Peter's words as an elder to other elders. Number one, an elder to elders. Peter is exhorting, there in verse 1, elders. And, and this word, elders, I don't want to assume that you're just like totally familiar with this word. Perhaps you grew up in a Southern Baptist church and you didn't even, you weren't familiar with that term, elder, or if you're from a different background and this is new to you. Um, you see the meaning kind of fleshed out here in the text, but it's just a word that describes the church's spiritual leaders, the church's leaders, um, you, you see it here described with that word shepherd. They're called to shepherd the flock, verse 2. The root word for that word shepherd is the word pastor. And they're also to exercise oversight. You see, they're overseers or bishops of the sheep. That's what the word overseer means. So what you see in, ter- in, the, in the New Testament is an elder, is a pastor, is a bishop, is an overseer. Those, are, those words are all interchangeable. And they're used to describe the leaders of the church. And this word for elder is also always in the plural in the New Testament, except for when it refers back to someone who's sort of talking about themselves, like Peter is here, a fellow elder. So you see plural elders in the churches in Jerusalem, Ephesus, and Crete. Uh, James refers to the sick, calling out for elders to pray over them. And so we, we, we see plural eldership in the New Testament churches, and then we see that this, this office of elder is reserved for biblically qualified men. Biblically qualified. So you see the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, in Titus 1, 5 to 9. Essentially, these qualifications, um, I could summarize them by saying this is a, someone who should be above reproach, who's basically living an exemplary Christian life, who's living out the things that we're all called to live as Christians, as believers. But Paul does limit this office to men, as he says right before he he offers the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3. He says in 1 Timothy 2, I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 
And we could, we could see and think about how those functions are used in other ways in the church, but clearly those are the functions he lays out for elders, teaching and having this spiritual authority. And he says that is reserved for biblically qualified men. And, and as, we've, as we've studied God's Word as a church and in other ways in Sunday school, we've seen how God's good intention in our, in our gender is, is that our equality as men and women— um, being made male and female in God's image with a diversity of roles and function, both in the family and in the church. And when that kind of pattern is followed, both men and women flourish. And that's what we see in the New Testament as it relates to elders and leaders. So even here in Peter's context, he just assumes there will be elders leading the churches. Now, we shouldn't read too fast over these sentences, sentences like this in the Bible, that almost feel like a sort of an introduction to what's really important. But this is actually important in and of itself, because Peter models really how an elder should think of himself there in verse 1. He models the life that he's calling other elders to lead. Look at it there in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ— as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. I think each word there is important. I wish we had more time to go through them. We could preach a sermon on just verse 1. But even the fact that Peter is in this, in this section exhorting, I think gives us an idea, a clue to his posture. Uh, Paul said this to Philemon. Philemon chapter—there uh, is only one chapter, 1 verse 8. According, uh, accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you— what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And that word appeal is the same word for exhort that Peter uses here. For, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal. And so, so Peter is, out of love, appealing to other elders, not with a force of command, which he could do, but as one of them, as a fellow elder. And we know from reading First Peter that Peter is a bona fide apostle of Jesus Christ. Capital A, apostle, which carries with it massive authority. When Peter writes letters, we call that scripture. So that's different than, than when I write letters. But he sees himself here as a fellow elder, a shepherd of God's people, just like the elders he's writing to. And I just think that, that's instructive for us. It would make sense, perhaps, to see the apostles serving as elders in their churches. But Peter isn't standing over the elders, although he could, but beside them. Not asking them to do anything that he himself isn't going to do or isn't prepared to do. So just Christian brothers, uh, learn from the humility of Peter here. Speaking in love as one of them, although he himself has authority, spiritual authority, great authority— but he speaks honestly and, transparent, and transparently even about himself. Consider the next two phrases. He's a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a, a partaker in the glory to be revealed. Think about what Peter means by that. Certainly he did witness the sufferings of Christ. He was there. He saw the, the tide of popular opinion change from we love you Jesus to we want to kill you Jesus. He saw how Jesus' ministry alienated him from his own family, his earthly family. How the Jewish leaders rejected him. How one of his own disciples betrayed him. He saw the agony of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And even in his arrest and questioning by the high priest, Peter was a witness. But, but Peter's witness to the sufferings of Jesus is also a witness to his own failure, isn't it, as a disciple himself. It brings up his own sin, his own failure. He left Jesus. He deserted Jesus. He denied Jesus three times. And so to bring this up is to bring up all of those realities. And elders, we shouldn't miss that. Church, we shouldn't miss that. Peter's not presenting himself as a kind of a false, hypocritical persona that that never fails. On the contrary, he shows himself to be someone who is needy of God's grace, saved by God's grace, and notice, looking for the glory to be revealed. I think that's a reference back to chapter chapter 4, verse 13, that pattern that we see of suffering and then glory, looking to the glory to be revealed, and knowing that Peter himself was restored by Jesus. Peter's no longer defined by his sin. He has been redeemed by the very one that he betrayed. Friends, Peter is a man who has not forgotten where he has come from. So I think our takeaway is this. Elders, pastors, we must practice what we preach. If we are going to call people to humility, we should model humility. If we're going to call people to transparency, it starts with us. If we're going to make much of God's grace, that should be the thing that defines us more than any position that we would hold. We shouldn't be separated from the others. Notice it's the elders among you. The elders should be smelling like sheep because they're among the sheep. Ultimately, we are sheep. And, and church, uh, beloved, just remember that, that your elders are first and foremost sheep who need a shepherd themselves, who are sinners who need a savior, members who need the body. And so our hope is the same as your hope, Christ alone, crucified and risen. So brothers, may we lead in love and humility as Peter does here. I just love the the way that even in his sort of introduction to this topic of elders, he, he sort of models this. The second relationship that we see here has to do with elders giving ministry or ministering to the flock. So that's number two, elders to the flock. And, and one way to group Peter's instructions here for elders is to think of it in terms of sins. Sins that pastors and elders are prone to. And then to think about the antidotes to those sins. So John Calvin describes this passage this way. He says, In exhorting pastors to their duty, he points out their vices, especially which are often to be found, namely sloth, desire for gain, and lust for power. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. There's a not. So when you see the not, that's a sin, right? Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You can see these sins revolve, these weaknesses kind of revolve around the imperative to shepherd the flock of God among you. So the call of a pastor is a call to shepherd God's people. The call of a pastor is a call to shepherd God's people faithfully. And the church doesn't belong to that pastor or those pastors. The flock, notice, is God's flock. So we are mainly stewards, 
of God's sheep, under shepherds, stewards of the one that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. As Paul reminds the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Brothers, feel the weight of that task. It is a yoke. It is a weight surely to be handed over to Jesus on a daily basis. Nevertheless, it is the calling of an elder, and it is our natural response to, with Paul, say, who is sufficient for these things in 2 Corinthians 2.16. And yet God calls, in his wisdom, human shepherds to care for, providentially, certain sheep, to oversee and shepherd a flock. So you see, the elders are called to a particular people, the flock of God that is among you. So not every Christian in our town or city is in our flock. Elders are responsible for a particular people before God. And likewise, you as a Christian should be under the authority of a particular group of elders. Not every pastor in your town or city or your youth minister that you grew up under or every pastor on television, but a particular group of shepherds. Friend, who is shepherding you? Who, who, who are those leaders that you're kind of submitting to? Who's overseeing your spiritual walk? Have you taken that upon yourself to sort of do that on your own? Notice how foreign that would be to this, these instructions in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. We don't see Christianity as merely an individual commitment in the New Testament, but a corporate commitment. Certainly, there are individual components. You, it must be, your Christianity must be personal, or it's no Christianity at all. You must personally repent of your sins and personally put your trust in Jesus Christ and personally follow him. Just not alone. You do that with other people who are doing the same thing. And that thing, that, that group is called the church. Elders are called to shepherd and oversee the spiritual lives of believers in a church. And so if you're not a member of a church, you are like a sheep outside of the flock. And you know that that's a dangerous place to be, wandering on your own. So join a church that preaches the gospel, that preaches God's word, and preferably the one, one that has elders who would care for your soul. The two functions of elders are summarized here. Shepherding and overseeing. See that? Overseeing just has this idea of watching or guarding the sheep. Elders are to watch the spiritual eyes of the flock. So their life and their doctrine, their profession and their practice, we should be as elders aware and watching and knowing and, and understanding what that is. And a big part of shepherding comes in the form of feeding the sheep, teaching God's word. Some elders have their main task as teaching and preaching, while, while others, um, although apt to teach, do so left, less often or in less upfront ways. But I just want to encourage you not to separate teaching from pastoring or, or, or shepherding from the sermon or from preaching. I see one of my main roles as feeding the sheep, as shepherding this flock, the preparation and preaching of sermons week in and week out. It's not the only way that I shepherd, but it's probably the main primary way. Martin Luther said that we shepherd God's flock by preaching the gospel. And 
this was Jesus' emphasis to Peter. If you remember that wonderful scene on the beach, after he was restored to, to, to Jesus in John 21, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter reminds us that the ministry of shepherding and oversight must not be characterized by sin, but by love for Jesus, love for Christ. So keep that picture in your mind as we think about these instructions. The first sin that he mentions is shepherding under compulsion there in verse 2. Under compulsion. And, and this is a picture of basically forced service. Pastoring because you have to or you've been made to. Like someone's got to do it, I'm going to do it. Now why would someone come under compulsion or, or pastor in this way? It could be because they were appointed to the task. Maybe they weren't ready, but they're, they're, they're sort of forced into this role. But when it gets hard, now we feel we're driven more by guilt than a desire to complete the task. There's a, center, there's a, a sense of self-focus. Well, what's the antidote to, to that sort of self-focus? Being under compulsion. Well, he says it's to serve willingly as God would have you serve. Willingly as God would have you serve. So not as the world would have you serve, not as a business model, not judging by visible results, but willingly as God would have you from the heart. Notice how Jesus connects Peter's love for him with his love for the sheep. If we love Jesus, we'll love the people of God. And elders, one way that we do display our love for Jesus is the way that we love and care for the people of God. You see that connection there, the way Jesus speaks with Peter? Beloved, you do not want elders that are doing what they're doing because they feel like they have to do it begrudgingly. Not out of duty, but because they want to do it. And out of delight, out of joy. C.S. Lewis describes this difference this way. He says, a perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want to do the right thing before the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love of God and for other people, like a crutch is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times. But of course, it is idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs or our own loves and tastes and habits can do the journey on their own. We've all been there, haven't we? We, We've known that crutch, but we want to understand when we're on it and repent from it and let our service be ultimately for the glory of God out of a sense of joy, not under compulsion. The second pastoral sin Peter mentions again has to do with our motivation. He says, shepherd not from, for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain would point to some man feeding his own greed in his heart. And the first thing we think of there is money, right? Pastors being, being paid or set aside as full-time or part-time in order to have their vocations sort of serving the church. I don't think that's what Peter means here. We see that practice throughout the New Testament. First Peter 5, elders who teach are worthy of double honor. We shouldn't muzzle the ox as he's, as he's feeding. 
But I think Peter is addressing pastoring for shameful gain as opposed to honest gain. Shameful motives. Doing it for the money. Doing it for a paycheck. Doing it for prestige or for position. Elders ought not to shepherd for shameful gain. Instead, the pastor should pastor eagerly. That's the antidote. Eagerly, which points to, I think, contentment. Contentment in a man's heart on Christ. I am satisfied in Christ. Therefore, I'm not looking for the church to be my savior, to build me up in my identity. My identity is in Christ. And that gives me a joyful outlook on my ministry. Pastors can be joyful in their work. And as a member of our church, you should know that's the best thing for you. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let the pastors pastor with joy. Who are those? Those leaders that we're submitting to, who are keeping watch over our souls, who have to give an account to King Jesus for how we, re- how we look over your souls. May, we, may it not be with groaning, but with joy. Brothers, I'm just reminded Jesus is much more concerned with our motives than he is our methods. The reasons in which we're serving, why we're doing what we're doing, not exactly how we're doing what we're doing. Those things tend to come. The final sin Peter mentions is one of domineering. Domineering over those in our care. Verse 3. Peter now shifts from this inward motivation to actual behavior, outward behavior. But, but those attitudes, of course, drive the behavior, right? If we're greedy for power and greedy for respect, we're going to lead in a domineering way. We're going to flaunt our authority. We're going to delight in throwing around authority and seeking to have it increased, forcefully ruling over others, being harsh with the sheep, showing excessive authority. All those things go under that label of domineering. And Peter says... Elders should not pastor through these ways, threats and emotional intimidation or the use of politics in the church to get what they want. Um, That's how the world does it. Isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus called them and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. So the antidote to that kind of, of, of leadership, Jesus says, is to take a posture of a servant or of a slave. In other words, to use your life as an example. Verse 3, for others to follow. Use your life as an example for others to follow. This does not in any way demean the authority of an elder that they should have in a church. It just shapes the way that authority is used to look a lot more like Jesus. So church, you should elect leaders and elders, deacons, ministers that are examples to the flock. Not perfect examples, because then you won't have anyone. But people who, like Paul, could say, follow me as I follow Christ. You know, there's essentially one skill listed in the qualifications for elders. One, that someone would be apt to teach. And the rest of the qualifications have to do with a man's character. So we just need to be careful not to get those things out of balance. They must both be present, both at work and in an elder's life. But elders are not cowboys that drive the herd from the rear with whips and whistles. No, elders are shepherds that have to lead from out front, 
calling the sheep to come where they already are, where they are going. And every week, as I just personally try to remember this, I'll just write down a little to-do list of things that I need to do that week and scratch them off and go to the next week. At the top of that list, I try to always write, pull, don't push. Pull, don't push. Just because I know in my own heart, I am prone to tell people to do things that I myself am not willing to do. I'm tell, I'm willing, I'm, I know in my own heart that I'm saying, I can say to people, you should do this in your family. You should do this in your life, but I'm not really doing it in my life. We need to be reminded, I need to be reminded to pull, not to push, to be an example. Not, not to lead by, by theory, not to lead from the back. So just pray for our example in this church. Pray for the future leaders that God would raise up, that they would lead by example, that we would see character, godly character, replicated in the lives of others. Finally, Peter mentions the shepherd's reward, which is beautiful there in verse 4. Look, look at chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is a good reminder that all pastors have a pastor. All shepherds have a shepherd. There is one chief shepherd. And we shepherds under shepherds need him. This is his flock. Jesus is the better shepherd, the perfect shepherd. We know the shepherds in Israel abused and used the sheep often. And Jesus came as the true shepherd. He came to die for the sheep. God promised in Ezekiel 34 to come himself and to gather his lost sheep together. And the promise is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And any false shepherd, anyone who's trying to poach the sheep, should tremble at the thought of one day answering to the true shepherd of the sheep because we will all stand before him. And in his heavenly vision, John recounts Jesus as both the lamb who is also a shepherd. Revelation seven seventeen. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What's Peter saying? He's saying elders should not live for earthly accolades or glory. But you should live for the recognition that comes from the chief shepherd, the glory that will come from him alone, this crown of unfading glory. That's a picture of this, this unending um, reward coming in Christ Jesus. It's really the word is a, is a word for this red blossom of a flower whose color was thought to just be unfading. So unlike the leafy crowns given to the victorious athletes, this crown of glory never fades. And this is what we are to look for, not earthly acclaim. And and just think about what this means for Peter. Peter knew this pattern. Because after Jesus restored him on the beach in John 21, he said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. But you just think about that in all of Peter's elder ministry. That's what he knows is coming. It's all done with the knowledge that he's going to suffer and die for Jesus. 
Tradition tells us being crucified upside down. So when he says he's not living for this world, he's living for an unfading crown of glory, not temporary rewards in this life. Just, don't you know these words from Jesus echo in his heart? Friends, we just have to understand and be ready to, to, to come to grips with it may all fall apart in flames. It may go down. It may be terrible. It may not end the way to have the storybook ending we want. And, and no one may end up knowing our name. We may not write any books. We may not speak at any conferences. But we are to be living for the unfading crown of glory that is worth it all. So brothers who serve, who are willing to serve, who will serve in the future, may we labor for the pleasure of Jesus, not seeking to please men, not seeking earthly rewards, but that we would receive this unfading crown of glory. And then with the elders in the book of Revelation, lay those crowns down at the feet of Jesus Christ. For he is our ultimate reward. He is why we're actually doing all of this. He alone is worthy. Finally, Peter mentions one more relationship that touches the office of elder, and it's the relationship of the flock to the elders and to each other. We're going to go rather quickly here. The flock to the elders and to each other there in verse 5. Let's read it. Let's read it. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Let's just stop there. That phrase, likewise, it shows us that Peter is not changing the subject. That's important because if you don't understand that, you're going to get confused when he's talking about younger people and elders. So I think he's still talking about elders like the church office of elder in chapter 5, verse 5. Not just talking about people who are older and people who are younger. That likewise tells us the subject is continuing, okay? So young people need to be subject to their, elder, to their elders. So I think it's a clear command, for the younger members of the churches to obey, to be subject to the elders' leadership. And I don't think that means older members are, are exempt from that. I think it's probably an indication that it's a lot harder for younger people to submit to leadership. And that those who have been sanctified for a season by God are more inclined to naturally be subject to godly leadership. So when Paul calls Timothy to flee youthful passions in 2 Timothy, the context isn't sexual temptation like we would assume, but a quarrelsome attitude. So I don't think Peter is saying you, you're not to hold elders accountable. You're just to be a rubber stamp with everything they say. You go along with them. Even if they seek to lead you in a sinful direction, no, that's not what he's saying. Uh, Tom Schreiner writes this, but those under the leadership of elders should be inclined to follow and submit to their leaders. They should not be resisting the initiatives and leaders and complaining about the direction of the church. Isn't, and you're saying, that's providential. We're about to have a members meeting. You can just trust me, this was scheduled a long time ago. But friends, we know that this is rooted, isn't it, in a trust for the chief shepherd by you, the church. Trusting in Jesus, who will return, who rules over his church. And so just as the elders have been instructed into servant leadership, the church is also instructed to follow that leadership and to be subject to the elders. And friends, how does that work out practically? Well, it looks, for us, it looks like a church that's elder-led and congregationally governed. We're elder-led, congregational. As one of our elders mentioned this week, the elders act like a steering wheel in the car, and the congregation has an emergency brake. So the congregation is driving, but it has an emergency brake, but the elders are leading. The congregation has that final authority, 
And the, the elders lead and are called to be subject and submit to those, or the congregation is called to be subject and submit to their elders. Elders are accountable to Jesus in light of Scripture. And the congregation is called to submit to that leadership. And friends, it all, all works really well, and especially well, when everyone in the church is marked by an attitude of what? Humility. Back to verse 5, chapter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That idea of clothing yourself with a spiritual attitude or attribute, I think, reminds us of Jesus taking up the servant's towel in John 13, washing the disciples' feet. Do you remember who objected to that? It was Peter, wasn't it? Peter's like, this ain't happening, Jesus. His mind was quickly changed. So we too are called to daily pursue this attitude of thinking of others before ourselves, putting others' interests before our own, seeking to serve and not to be served. And of course, this should just be displayed in this attitude when we have members meetings, when we have small groups, when we have other other opportunities to come together. We together, marked by humility, seek God's glory alone. Because we know God is actively opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And that shouldn't surprise us. It's not a merit-based system. But the proud, we would just know by default, don't feel a need for God's grace. The humble are empty and needy. The proud are are self-sufficient. The humble are dependent. The proud are self-confident. The humble are self-denying. And we are only humble because of God's grace. So if we brag about our humility, we've missed it. God delights in being trusted in like this. And arrogance, either by a domineering elder or by a troublemaking church member, brings about God's opposition. There's a mutual humility that's called for in the church. And God gives grace to those who are willing to humble themselves for the sake of Christ and for his flock. And it's humility all the way through, from the apostle to the elder to the church member. And so, brother or sister here this morning, just kind of evaluate your heart for a moment. Is there a section or a corner there that the Spirit might be exposing as being full of pride? Is it because of a lack of, a general lack of trust in authority? Or maybe a bad experience that colors your current ability to trust the leaders God has put in your life? Or maybe pride that says, I don't think I need spiritual oversight. I can handle this on my own. Maybe you're an elder or you desire to be an elder. Well, would others in your life closest to you describe you as humble? As someone who would tremble at God's word, as Isaiah 66 says. God's plan for leadership in the local church includes authority. It includes submission, but both done in humility. And when that is done poorly, everyone suffers. The witness of Christ is kind of camouflaged. But when that is done well, everyone is blessed. And I love the words, kind of the ending of 2 Samuel, that describe what, what godly authority looks like. 2 Samuel 23, 3, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. May God do that among us. Pray that would be our experience. 
And I want to close this this morning in prayer. But as I pray, I just want to specifically think about our current elders. And I want to think about those future elders that that God might raise up and for our current congregation and for our church in the future. So if you're currently serving as an elder, would you just stand just for a moment? Just stand. I'm standing. So if, if you're wondering who are those elders currently in our church, there they are. Okay, keep standing. And then if you're a covenant member of Baptist Church of the Redeemer, would you also stand? Would you also stand? Praise the Lord. Now let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would do this work among us. We do not assume that by default we have already arrived. Lord, we confess pride on, on many levels and we, can pr- we confess a desire to seek to, to serve you and Lord, we pray that we'd be marked by humility. We pray there would be a, just a spirit of, of patience and forgiveness in our, amongst our people when the elders fail when the elders make mistakes. And Lord, we pray that you would guard us from any kind of bitterness or any kind of um, domineering rule from the elders to the congregation. Lord, may we understand and be reminded this is your church. You have purchased with your own blood. And Lord, you have promised that what you have begun in us, you would bring it to completion. And Lord, we are grateful for that and we hold fast to that promise. We ask that you would do a work in us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.